Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes saw out the 2019 Formula 1 season in the, the perfect way with Hamilton's 11th victory of the season and an utterly dominant drive in the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, one of the more straightforward ones uh, he'll ever have to, to go through, but still plenty to talk about in this race. I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me first to look back at the uh, at the race is Jack Benyon, who here to cover F2 this weekend, but as always, also very much in among goings-on in, in Formula 1, so... I guess you, you had a slight distance from the from the race today. It wasn't it wasn't a classic, but still a few talking points. Is it at this point where we have to spend the next thirty minutes talking about our food or our hotel location or the colour of the paint in the room, or is that just a thing that's specific to Scott Mitchell? Uh, well, no, we like to give an idea of location. The, the hotel is all rather sensible, apart from the slight lack the lack of hot water at times. That's been a bit disappointing. Yeah, the pressure the the pressure in the shower is not ideal, to be honest. Uh, but apart from that, it's a, it's a decent hotel in a decent location downtown Abu Dhabi. Yep, very much so. We're sort of on the other side of Abu Dhabi to the uh, to the circus. It's a bit of a drive, but it's only about 20, 25 minutes, so it's not it's not too bad. Now, I'm also joined by Jake Boxer-Leg. Can you give us a ruling on what colour the walls are? Uh, they are... Oh, oh they're... Oh, taupe. Taupe. Ooh. I would have said beige or cream, but well, taupe being basically a mixture of beige and cream, and also the colour that Barack Obama dictated that his White House was his uh, Oval Office was coloured when he moved in. Ah, well, there we go. That's good fact. I was trying to think if it was a if it was a Formula One car. You know, it's not it's not a million miles away from kind of a Barclay Arrows. It's not a million miles away from the 2019 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, is it really? <laughs> in terms of uh, just what being a little bit uh, not, but actually. That's the thing. There's always stuff going on in these races, and 
ultimately, we can cover off Lewis Hamilton's victory quite easily. He was on pole. He had the lead. He pulled away quite comfortable, quite comfortable right early on. Built a lead over Charles Leclerc. Ran a bit longer than Leclerc and the, and the, the other Ferrari. Pitted after Verstappen did, and, and just in control. I guess it underlines how dominant he was, Jack, that he was able to nail that fastest lap, lap 53 of 55 on hards that I think started the lap with 26 laps uh, under their belt. Reminiscent of the French Grand Prix in that regard, that late fastest lap on hards. As you said, um, his obviously his, his main opposition was, was Verstappen in the end, and it was all about stretching the the stint out on the tyres as, as long as possible and making sure that he was covering off that, you know, the potential for the undercut later on. So did a very good job of that. But really the gap that he had to Verstappen was was big enough that he didn't really need to worry too much. And it was more just a, a sort of covering off and, and being absolutely sure, wasn't it? But as you said, the the last lap was a, a stunning effort. Very, very similar to, to Paul Ricard, as you mentioned. And to be able to do that on the penultimate lap as well uh, was, was absolutely sensational. Pre-penultimate, technically. Was it pre-penultimate? 53-55, yeah. I've been proved wrong already within the first... What what's that? The first two minutes of the podcast. So uh, I think you're slipping, Ed, and you should try <laughs> harder because I've definitely said something else that's wrong in that period of time. The thing is, though, your point stands. It was very late in the race. It was very late in the race, and it was a, a phenomenal lap and showed what they had in reserve. I think Mercedes in, in that race. I'm sure uh, if we had have had more of a challenge from from Red Bull or Ferrari, then uh, I think Mercedes would have been able to pick the pace up. And uh, he, he, I think he took it fairly easy on the on the absolute last lap. Uh, and, and the gap came down a little bit but yeah pretty phenomenal performance from, from Lewis Hamilton and in, in the wake of a, a fairly uh, difficult season from his point of view because we know how much he likes pole positions and he's really struggled with that this year coming into the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix he only had four pole positions and 11 race wins which is quite a, a sensational tally when you when you put those two stats together like that so to bag that extra pole position and, and take that 11th win was a, a big deal for him I'm sure and uh, you know it's something that he likes to uh, mark up the pole positions. He's he's very keen on those, and uh, you could almost tell on the radio in qualifying earlier this year, in in while the Ferrari streak was going on after the summer break, that he was becoming more and more irate that he wasn't able to score that that pole position and, and break that duck that he's had. So um, I think up until the uh, I think up until this race, it was four pole positions coming into Abu Dhabi. The last time he had that few, I think, was 2011 when he had that sole uh, sole pole position in Korea. So. Interesting uh, season for him in terms of pole positions, but uh, that was the key to the race today. Had a good start, and uh, as we've already mentioned, he just had to cover off Verstappen with that early sort of long stint. And ultimately, yeah, covering off <laughs> Verstappen really was was miles away. So it, yeah, comfortable win, the, the winning margin. What was it in the end? I'm going to sixteen point seven seven two. Might it might as well have been a minute. It might as well have been two laps. Quite frankly, uh, it was not a, uh, a a live race, should we say, for uh, for Hamilton. So, Jake Boxall leg, let's look down the order. There was an interesting subplot in that there was a battle for third in the Drivers' Championship between uh, Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc. Uh, something of a, of a winner-takes-all battle, uh, you, you could say. We did actually see those two swapping positions a couple of times, but Verstappen did have some problems. Obviously, uh, Leclerc got past Verstappen on the first lap. They had a little bit of a battle and then Verstappen came back at him in the second stint. But there were problems for Verstappen. We had a lot of complaints over the radio about that. That was like the handbrake effect at one stage you described it as. Yeah, so many complaints. It was like listening to uh, LBC when Nigel Farage is on. Um, topical. <laughs> topical comedy. Exactly. Um, Good for our overseas listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. They'll totally get that. Topical. I'm not sure about the comedy element. 
<laughs> I thought it was funny. Anyway, um, so yes, Max Verstappen was particularly not irate, but a little bit unhappy with his car and he let his engineers know quite heavily over the radio uh, and by association let everybody else watching the race know. Um, the problem seemed to be that there seemed to be a disconnect between what he was putting into the throttle and what the engine was giving him. And uh, It's happened a couple of times before over the season, but that was uh, a mapping issue that was more on Rebel's part. But after the race, um, Honda suggested that the the blame kind of lay with them um, in that there was a, just a sort of problem with the, the thro- general throttle system, that kind of thing. Yeah, it does seem to be a general s- system failure in there that happened Yeah, um, after the first pit stop or in the first pit stop or whatever. Yeah, so something around that time. And then, obviously, Verstappen then let his displeasure be known. Um, and it got to the point where Rebel looked at it and said, okay, we can't really do anything. And then they said to him, look, you, you're kind of going to have to live with it. You're going to have to limp on with this because there's not really anything that we can do at this point. So I think after he'd been told to shut up basically and get on with it, um, he he continued to have quite a good race. So He did indeed shut up and get on with it. He did. Uh, he shut up and he drove and uh, he got second and third in the championship by association so uh it was a good race for him did have to overcome some issues but that's the all the greats have to do that at some point do that don't they? they have to drive around a problem uh make and it as, to the finish and as he said when you were grilling him after the race about it, it didn't exactly cost him it wasn't like it was costing him the massive amount of time he didn't need to bother hamilton those those kind of things can be uh real distractions for drivers though and when you consider how many processes they have to go through now on the steering wheel how much they're changing the brake bias and how many uh, engine modes they're going through per race something is some sometimes menial or in the past something really small uh you know 30 years ago or 20 years ago can be a, actually a massive problem in the car now and to drive around it and uh ed i'm sure you'll have the numbers there but he, you know the Ferraris had the measure of Alex Albon today, I think, pretty much. But Max was, you know, he pretty much drove away as soon as he got past Leclerc with that sort of late dive at, at turn eight. I think he was uh, quite a way ahead of Charles Leclerc by the end of the race, and the, there wasn't too much of a race there. So, Well, Leclerc at the end, there was no chance of him coming back at him. Yes, Verstappen had the tyre offset. Obviously, Leclerc decided to take the pit stop to have a punt at faster slap. Couldn't even get that. Yeah. <laughs> but the gap, the gap before the pit stop, was was it around 13 seconds or...? Uh, I'd have it in my notebook, but I've uh, yeah, it was, it was it was significant. It was very it was, significant, uh, it was and gap. it showed that Max definitely had the measure of of Charles at pretty much all times today, even though that problem kind of intervened. Yeah, ex- exactly, and uh, I, I think you know worthy worthy end to the season for Staff. I think he's quite. He should be third in the championship, I think. Of course, Bottas finished finished in in second place. Well, that does bring us on to Ferrari and. Jake Boxer leg. We had this very interesting thing before the race with uh, Joe Bauer, the FIA F1 technical delegate, uh, calling the stewards' attention to the fact that there was uh, uh, that the, the the claimed level of fuel put in Leclerc's Ferrari did not tally with the amount that was in there. Obviously, this was going to be investigated after the race. The result was a, a fifty thousand fine. I can't remember the currency. Fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand euros fine. Uh, so pricier than fifty thousand dollars, but. Some were hoping that they were, or hope, some of their rivals were hoping they'd be disqualified or expected they'd be disqualified. So there's quite a lot to explain here. So, what exactly was found on the car? What did it contravene? Why was the penalty not as dramatic as some suggested it might be? Well, first, so first and foremost, um, everyone undergoes like a fuel check. You have to have your fuel 
that you put on board the car for for everything from pit exit to your reconnaissance laps to the race start formation lap uh and getting back to the pit as well that is a single fuel measure that has to be measured before you leave the garage um and this of course all is in a technical directive yeah issued ahead of this of this season so it's not actually in the technical regulations but it's in a technical directive effectively an addendum to the regulations yeah. so um so that's something that everybody has had to do from this season um to you know to stop playing around with fuel and things like that um when ferrari measured it there was a discrepancy to that which was found by the FIA, and the FIA found that Ferrari had a significant amount, which amount turned out to be 4.88 kilograms off the top of my head, uh, more in Leclerc's car than Ferrari had told them that there was. Um, but because this was done so close to the start of the race, they decided that they weren't going to just penalise them there and then. Um, Michael Massey, the race director, said there needs to be a fair and just process, and five minutes before the pit lane opens isn't really enough time to, you know, let everybody make their case. So they let him go ahead, go and do his race, and then they looked at it at the end of the race. Um, and then, yeah, received his €50,000 fine uh, for breaking technical directive uh, 1219, uh, 12th te- technical directive of 2019. Uh, that's a nice little system they've got there. Um, why was it just a fine and not a disqualification? Um it was in breach of the FIA International Sporting Code, but I don't know if there was something that explicitly said that one has to be disqualified for that. Christian Horner on Sky Sports suggested that they should be, um, and I'm sure another, a few more team bosses will have said, yeah, should have been a slammed on disqualification. There is a feeling among rival teams that they've got away with something here. Yeah, but, but the trouble is the stewards, quite often we get these quite detailed stewards explanations. This one was rather perfunctory. Because it raises all sorts of questions to me. Because it's like, right, you wouldn't put the extra fuel in the car unless you intended to use it. So then that raises the question, of, well, unless you did it by accident, but the stewards they gave no indication there was a mistake, whatever they did that. So then you say, well, if you're using extra fuel, what are you using that for? Obviously to get to, to burn more fuel, burn more energy. Then you start thinking, well, where was that fuel? It all fits into the intrigue surrounding what Ferrari's doing. Yeah. there's, And the more you try to unpack it, the more there is to unpack. Because then you think, okay, so... Because obviously during the, the course of a race, you're allowed, say, 110 kilograms of fuel now, maximum. Um, and obviously Ferrari was declared that they had run, I assume, less than that. And then it turned out they'd run with more. And so teams are underfueling. So it's then quite, then you you kind of just get yourself into an endless cycle of okay so is this what they're doing is that what they're doing obviously there must be some relation to the talk about their powertrain and what they are allegedly doing with regards to fuel uh, burning and that kind of thing um, yeah so yes as I said there's a lot to unpack um, and I don't think we'll ever truly know right now what quite the rationale behind just a fine rather than anything deeper than that so um i I don't think the story's over um it is for this season obviously but i think we'll have to wait and see what's going on i think one thing that's been made very clear in all of this is that ferrari have been tested a lot this season so there's either an internal uh 
rationale from the from the FIA or there's some sort of external force that is putting pressure on the FIA for Ferrari to be tested on a regular basis. So if this is the case and they are being tested on a regular basis and they're looking for something, then surely catching them in a breach of a regulation like they have done today would have been the opportunity for them to throw the book at Ferrari for, for, for that. And they haven't done that. They've given them a fine. So I think that's something that's worth No, no, and, and Mattia Bonotto pointed out in terms of the, the checks, they've been tested for the amount of fuel in the car on this rule. I think he's, I think he said about 10 times this season because it's not done for everyone. So they've been checked regularly. Now, there are you can come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories for why they might not want to kind of imply there was there's been some systematic cheating over the year although plenty of people have been whispering this sort of thing might be be happening so so, so it's, it's true sometimes they could let them get away with it and think well we flagged up we know what you're you're doing the thing that interests me is the question of where the, well, I, do, I do just wonder where that fuel is because it's very very it should be very very easy to for them to check the level of fuel in the car because it will be in the fuel tank basically and then a tiny bit will be sat in the fuel system i guess so that that does make me wonder that we will find out more about this in the coming weeks coming days in terms of exactly what's been going on the 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 lack of detail in the stewards decision was was inter- interesting shall we say and like i say there's lots of lots of fuming teams who think that Ferrari have got away with it but again there is an element of innocent until proven guilty and also innocent until proven publicly guilty so yeah, it's Formula One though, isn't it? People pushing the boundaries and uh, we should note, however, that Ferrari did lack pace in the race. We have seen that before. They did spend quite a lot of the race in a fuel save engine mode they went into quite early, unusually early. Sebastian Vettel was slightly puzzled by that. We heard over the radio and they only came out of it right at the very end. So, yeah, who knows? It's uh, Again, as has been with a lot of this, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence going around the place, but... This is the first time that Ferrari has been done for anything related to its fuel system and the nature of the punishment means it's considered not to be that major an offence, but yeah, they might think they flagged it up so they can uh, stop them. But yeah, very, very, uh, very interesting little sting in the tail for the for the, the season there. But yeah, Leclerc ended up uh, behind, uh, behind Verstappen. Sebastian Vettel, of course, finished in fifth place. He took that second stop, which was a little bit unexpected, shall we say, but understand why he did it because Bottas who started from the back was inevitably going to pass him and that meant Vettel sacrificed track position to Albon as well but he did repass Albon very very late on Vettel did have a bit of a moan on the radio that it said it was borderline when Albon came at, came back at him after being passed uh, what did you make of that? That was an interesting one I think I think borderline was a good way to describe it actually I thought, I thought Vettel did a good job of it I think borderline but it wasn't you know, it wasn't outrageous. Um, it's just that Al- I think Vettel just thought that album was, was passed and Alban thought, no, I'm just going to sort of chuck it back up the inside. Yeah, well, it was, um, it wasn't uh, Bottas on Grosjean, was it, in, in free practice, <laughs> for, for sure. Obviously, uh, Alex sent it from quite a way back and it was a, a very late dive and he had to use all of the road on the exit of the corner. And I think I think Sebastian's probably right. If he, I think he also mentioned on the radio, Ed, that... Um, if he hadn't have, I think he said if he hadn't have, if he hadn't have moved, or if he, he hadn't have, back- he did, he did sort of check. You can see him just, he's, he's sort yeah. of going in, and he just sort of. He says on the radio, I can't remember his exact wording, but he he basically says if he hadn't have moved out of the way, then they would have crashed. But 
I think that's how that happens in a lot of overtakes these days. Um, you know, you you could make the argument that if you know drivers don't move out of the way, then there is going to be a crash sometimes. But you know, if the driver's got the the piece of track, then he then he's earned it at that point. And for me, I thought it was very opportunistic from Alex, and as Sebastian Vettel rightly described it, it was borderline. But for me, there was nothing wrong with it, and I thought it was a very opportunistic opportunistic move. Well, I did ask Alex Albon about this after the race, and he didn't seem particularly. He, he wasn't angry or anything he just didn't he sort of shrugged it off and I mentioned that the word the phrase borderline was used and he sort of said well it's racing he was very aggressive in Interlagos was the comment that I made <laughs> so yeah I, I don't I don't really have a have a, a problem at all with that and obviously Vettel that was uh, that was like 53 as well as well so he, that that was quite cut quite fine in terms of reclaiming the uh, the fifth place it wasn't a, a race that would be remembered for its overtakes so it was nice to to see that move from from Alex and obviously the the overtaking moves on the track are pretty much limited to, to turn eight and turn eleven at the end of those straights. Um, obviously DRS played a big role in that not being activated for the first seventeen laps of the race, so that obviously uh, played into the the overtaking part of things. But yeah, I think um, borderline with with Albon. I don't think anyone really suggested that he should be getting a penalty for it, and uh, I'm glad that he didn't because I didn't think it was deserved. I think. Vettel had uh, surrendered the position at that point. It was clear that Alex was going to stay on the track and not have to use the runoff. So in that point, you know, Sebastian's got to surrender the corner and, and give Alex that position, in my opinion. Yep, I'd agree with that. Uh, you mentioned the DRS problem. Obviously, that that compromised Bottas a little bit. He started at the back. He had the failure in uh, an Interlagos in the Brazilian Grand Prix two weeks ago. So he was coming into the weekend knowing he'd have a back-of-the-grid penalty. He actually had a pneumatic leak in FP2 and they took another uh, new power unit, but that didn't increase the penalty strangely enough he did actually go through qualifying normally so he did qualify second fastest but still started from the back on medium tires but he was slightly impeded early on in that the DRS wasn't used and usually the DRS comes in uh, comes online on lap three uh, it didn't come online until lap 18 because of uh, what was called a, a system a system failure so what what exactly happened Jake in terms of this what why was the DRS out of action um this is uh a problem that the FIA had in that there was a, a sort of data server issue. That's what Michael Massey said. And they spent a good few laps trying to work out what the problem was, uh, making sure that everything was fine before they switched it back on. Uh, eventually came back on on lap 18, as you said. Um, and immediately Valtteri Bottas was able to take advantage of it. Uh, he, he was the first to deploy the DRS. Yeah, and he, he made it count. He'd been stuck by Hul behind Hulkenberg for a, a fair few laps, and both he and Hulkenberg had yet to pit. Vettel and Albon were coming up behind them at a vast rate of knots, and both of them had pitted. So Bottas sort of had had to make that move, or risk losing positions and risk losing that progress. And it came on at just the right time for him. So Bottas had a nice stroke of luck. I think it was probably the first bit of luck he'd had all weekend. Although he could, although he could argue that uh, yeah, not, the DRS cost him time. It would have been interesting if he'd had the DRS from lap three and he'd have got past, say, Perez a bit quicker as well. I'll come back a bit quicker. He's only a second behind Albon at the end and, and knocking on the door, uh, behind Leclerc at the end rather, and knocking on the door of a, of a podium. So he might look at that and think, well, if, if the DRS is working properly. Well, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it, Valtteri. I, th I, think, I think we've had too many instances in the past. Well, personally, I can remember the past couple of seasons, but I'm, I'm sure maybe it was a little bit further back than that as well. But people like 
uh, Max Verstappen um, coming to memory where they've had to start at the back of the grid and, and they've just blitzed their way through the field and in a, in a case of a few laps and it's it's really not been much of a fight back. I quite enjoyed Valtteri having to overtake properly almost, uh, not to take anything away from people who use DRS opportunistically and, and use it properly, but when I say proper overtake, I mean without any assistance, um, you know, lining people up, making sure you get a good exit off the corner and uh, you know, I think the only the only problem with that really was that the DRS should have been switched off for the whole race in that case. Um, obviously, we just got half a race where, you know, Bottas could rightfully argue that in a previous race he maybe would have even got on the podium, you know, if he'd have had the DRS. So, I don't know. It's a uh, it's a it's a difficult one, isn't it? But I think we've uh, we've had cases in the past where it's been too easy for people to go to the back of the grid and come through the pack, and I quite like the the idea of Valtteri having to do it properly and given the given you know as much as making it more difficult for Valtteri to overtake, given the drivers who are watching him come through an opportunity to actually defend and, and defend, you know, properly and, uh, you know, get, have a good go at, get, uh, at keeping him behind because, you know, F1's full of uh, fantastic history and there's lots of uh, rose-coloured spectacles out there. But in the past, you know, when a driver was at the back of the grid, he would have had to fight his way through. And at the end of the day, he would have, earned his position wherever he finished whether it was you know the back end of the top 10 or whether they made it back to the the top five the podium or or whatever so um yeah i really enjoyed the two elements of that that the there was drivers out there who were able to defend properly against bottas and bottas having to tee them up and maybe um, change his strategy a little bit when he was trying to overtake it also created a bit more strategic variety as well made the uh the decisions of whether you pit or whether you run long R- running long became a bit more valid in, in this race because of that and uh yeah ultimately i thought i think on bots's drive i think it was a good performance to come through to fourth from from the back almost get a podium that's as good as it was ever going to be i don't think he could have gone he couldn't got into the, the battle for the, the top two position certainly and yeah good way to finish the season for for Bottas he's obviously had a had it had his strongest uh, strongest year but we did see a bit further down the order even if the front was not that dramatic the race for 7th through 12th in the end was absolutely brilliant decided on the last lap there were there were two significant passes actually on the last lap eventually we had Sergio Perez winning uh, winning class B as I like to call it in 7th place uh, with a last lap pass on uh, on Lando Norris uh, what did you make of, of of that, Jake? Obviously, Perez ran very long again. He's a master of mitigate of managing the rear tire slip of limiting that, so he can run long. And then he attacked on the on the hards, uh, having having made his stop. But yeah, found his way past Lando Norris on the on the last lap. Yeah, as you said, it was one of two on the final lap that was decided. Um, and Norris wasn't particularly happy with that at all, um, from his own perspective, rather than with Perez. Um, he felt that he should have defended it a lot better. Um, Perez had a fantastic race, given that he got hit at the start of the race, which I'm sure we'll get onto at some point. Um, he didn't seem to suffer any damage from it, and he was absolutely fine. Managed to just cruise through the field, made up places. He's so good at managing tyres, isn't he? He just seems like ever since 2012, when we had mad Pirelli tyres, he seemed to be that person that could just keep them in the window didn't seem to suffer the same degradation as everybody else and he took uh, his the Sauber that he used to drive up to ridiculous places and got podiums um, he's not in quite a car that will quite allow that but he has been in the past and he continues to show that when there is an opportunity when there is a chance to you know go long and turn your strategy into a result he can do it 
and, and well, he's, he's he's been and he's been fantastic the second half of the season I think the only race he didn't score points in was Singapore when he retired from 10th uh, although he was incredibly lucky at Suzuki because he crashed out on the last lap trying to pass Gasly and then because of the timing error the race finished a lap early so he was lucky there but I've, I've been impressed with Perez it was, it was interesting though uh, Jack watching Norris the move wasn't wasn't in the, the live feed but he was quite soft Perez went around the outside and I can kind of understand why he was kicking himself because we know from the way the stewards have acted that you can kind of hang someone out to dry or at least make it a lot harder if they're if they're on the outside. But but Lando said, um, I spoke to him after the race, he just said he he kind of been in the mindset of looking after the tyres and being careful and being sensible. And then like it's like he couldn't quite snap into the right mode, so he was kicking himself because he, he led Class B basically from start to almost finish. I think we... Um we we remember the incidents where drivers have been too aggressive because they usually end up in a crash or in a, a significant incident. Sometimes we don't remember the incidents of drivers being a little bit too conservative and that's what happened to Lando today. It was a real shame because I think Andreas Seidel described his tyre management as sensational or, or supreme or was, sublime cause, cause or, or something was, on those lines. Because he was being given um, the instruction just to, in the closing laps. It's like, well, nothing to lose. You've got to go on these tyres, so use use them. And he was turning in some good lap times, actually, that, that meant... it. Perez had a harder task than it looked. Could have got, I remember that radio message and it could have gone either way really. Lando could have uh, consigned himself to losing places and, and falling down the order at that point, but he didn't. He got his head down and delivered some pretty stunning lap times on those tyres. You know, obviously not everyone's driving a Mercedes, but Lewis showed that the, the you know if you kept the tyres alive that they, there were there were life in them at the end. So in doing so, obviously Lando was able to, to sort of replicate that feat and, and deliver some strong lap times. So that that was good to see. Um, look, yeah, a little bit disappointing to see him sort of fall away at the end there with 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 Perez coming through, but. You know, it's a it's a long race, and he could have uh, he could have been a little bit too conservative a lot earlier in the race, and and, and lost that position at any time really. So obviously, it hits home a little bit harder when you lose that on the last lap. And uh, I'm pretty sure Lando won't be uh, making any conservative defensive moves in the first half of next season because he'll have that in his mind the whole time. Yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, he's a good driver, especially seeing as he got himself into a little bit of bother early on on lap eight. He had a big lock up into turn seventeen, the right hander kind of going under the hotel straight into the pits, way too big a flat spot. And that meant that he stopped, dropped into slower traffic than he would have done. So he did uh, He did do a good job to make sure he, he retained the lead of uh, Class B, as it were, through that, because Ricardo and Sainz behind were having a little bit of a battle. Probably uh, a good cross-section of his season, wasn't it, really, that race? Yeah, <laughs> Probably I mean, quite a good reflection. Lots of... Uh, sensational supreme sublime driving however you want to describe it whichever word uh, Andreas used it began with S I'm pretty sure and um, you know some some real uh, some real good defensive driving and then a little bit of bad luck with a, with a flat spot and the, and the being passed at the last lap kind of sums up his season perfectly and why so many points behind Carlos Sainz despite being you know pretty much as, as quick as him for most of the season Lando used a different word beginning with S to describe his defence on the last lap can we say that on the Sport podcast I think people know what we're, yeah. <laughs> what we're what we're getting at but yeah and, and and we behind we had Sergio Perez seventh, Lando Norris eighth, Daniel Kvyat ninth. He uh, he ran along as well and, and and got involved picking up a few points later on. Carlos Sainz tenth. Now this tenth place was very important. Uh, Sainz was in the mix early on. He's battling uh, with Ricardo for for second in class, as it were. They uh, he he passed Ricardo shortly after the uh, after the, the pit stops, but then he aborted his one stopper. Made the second stop. Knew he had to to come through and, and make some passes in the last lap. He, he got he got 
Nico Hulkenberg, Hulkenberg possibly in his last Grand Prix, certainly his last Grand Prix for now. And Sainz said after the race, it was a bit like a world championship intensity because he, he's been really focused on finishing sixth this season. He's been talking about it for a while and he had to get that point in order to depose Pierre Gasly. And uh, it wouldn't have mattered if he didn't, but but great for Sainz to finish off the season with a, with, with an incisive move. Yeah, absolutely. And it, just, it shows the, the progress that he's made as a driver this year. Um He's had a sort of, it's, I wouldn't say a nomadic career as such. He, I mean, you know, a season uh, and a half at Toro Rosso, uh, a season and a half at Renault. He talks about not having had stability, yeah, which exactly. he now has. And he's got that because he's got the second season with McLaren. Um, and he's, it's the first time that he's come in as de facto team leader. And he's just taken that challenge on. It's been so impressive to see. Um, and then that move was on Hulkenberg was... You know, it was so well timed. It was as he as he put it. It was the last lap, last overtaking opportunity on the on the circuit. He was on the right hand side of the road. Hulkenberg then sort of assumed the middle, and Sainz saw a spot on the inside, and he was like, "I'm going for it." He sweeped across the track, stuffed it down the inside at turn eleven, and and made made it stick. Um, and it was one point he and Gasly were tied on points coming into the round as they're tied on points because Gasly has the P2 from Brazil and Sainz has the three on count back, Gasly would have got the P6. I know it's sort of not really an important thing, P6, but, you know, it's brag- it's bragging rights and then Sainz got that one point that was enough to just tip him over the edge. And, you know, obviously when you have a driver that does a full season of Red Bull, you would expect them to get P6. I've, I've not done the maths, but um, you think... You know that would that would guarantee to be ahead, but science has done an absolutely fantastic job um, to be P six uh, in such a sort of three team field. It's a it's a great job. He's had such such a phenomenal season. I think it's really uh, really interesting couple of months for for science coming up because I think already the the top teams will be will be looking at him as the kind of star outsider from from this season for sure. The one thing that the top teams won't have any experience of with with Carlos or any evidence of is him developing a car because he's never had that opportunity. So I think next year's McLaren and the performance of of that car could say a lot about what happens in in 2021 for for Carlos because you know if they hit the ground running at the start of next year and and the McLaren you know sort of continues the upward trend that they that they began this year then that you know potentially. Um, obviously the the big teams will be investigating and speaking to people within the team and things like that but uh, they'll have a good idea of how good Carlos is at developing a car as well and that may, might make him a more attractive proposition for, for any one of the top three teams going into the 2021 season. And that's a good thing you've picked up on there and actually we have seen signs of that this year pardon that wasn't an attempt at a pun I know uh, I wouldn't try and uh, out pun I said seen signs of that this year which obviously is, there we go there we go um, but the McLaren has been one of the best developed cars this year in terms of the overall gain it's made relative to, to everyone. It's really stood out in that regard. Started the season a little bit shaky, but one of the interesting things is Sainz was released to do the Abu Dhabi test last year for McLaren. And apparently some of the, the directions and things he picked out on from last year's car kind of gave them a rolling start into ideas for this year. So I think certainly internally he's already shown that that ability and, and I think you're right next year he'll have the chance to perhaps uh, ram that home to a few others. I certainly think if you're Red Bull you're looking at that and thinking we probably should have kept Carlos 
proves that um, proves that test at the end of the year is uh, not as irrelevant as some people uh, make it out to be as well and that it's worth uh, keeping an eye on autosport.com for all the latest news coming from the test later this week great plug great. of course <laughs> I was going to say of course Esteban Ocon will be driving for Renault in that test having been released by Mercedes so that, that's uh, one of the interesting uh, interesting moves but talking of, of Renault obviously this, kind of, this almost summed up Renault's season Ricardo and Hulkenberg were in the points for almost almost all of the race, but then ended up uh, ended up eleventh and eleventh uh, and twelfth. A very uh, unfortunate for, uh, kind of race for them. Obviously, they they got caught. I did think it was a little bit strange that Hulkenberg, who started on the softs, went onto the mediums for a second stint, and then he ran out of tyres at the end of the race. So you think, well, given that the hards were working pretty well, that that was perhaps a, a bit of a mistake. But it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's just a very Renault season, isn't it? That they should have been. They should have been in there for the for the class B honours and just weren't. I guess the the race sums up the season perfectly, as you said. Had uh, some odd strategical decisions, um, uh, a little bit up and down in terms of pace on each tyre, and uh, you know, two brilliant drivers again, not given the the strategy or, or the car underneath them to be fighting in the positions that they should be fighting for. Well, I would have said that Holkenberg's strategy, if he'd started on hards and then gone to mediums, that did seem to be like a very good strategy to go on. But if you don't go deep enough into the race on those hards, then by the time you've got the mediums and obviously degradation is a lot higher, um, within the last five or so laps and you lose those tyres after 20 laps or so on them, then, you know, you've you've sort of front-loaded it too much and you've not thought about the race as a whole. So whether the strategy was right or not, uh, that's kind of irrelevant, but Renault didn't seem to play it out properly. The best part of uh, the best part of Renault's race, in my opinion, was uh, Hawkenberg's uh, radio exchange with en- his engineer at the end of the race, where his engineer said, "It's been a pleasure working with you." And he says, "Nico said, uh, I wish I could say the same to you as well,' <laughs> 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 which pr- which prompted some some laughter." Yeah, yeah, very. Uh, uh, it's a shame that this could be Nico Hulkenberg's last Grand Prix. It's uh, you know he's a he's a class driver. I have to say though, this year he has been outclassed by Daniel Ricciardo, particularly in the. Often in the races today was a strong performance, but he's been a little bit up and down on the Sundays compared to Ricardo. Look further down the order, you know, Alfa Romeo were fairly mediocre in the race. Kimi Raikkonen was thirteenth. Has Kevin Magnussen had the car up there for a bit, but as always, it doesn't quite match the pace it's got in qualifying in the race. So we had Magnussen fourteenth and, and Grosjean. 15th, Antonio Giovinazzi and 16th and the other Alfa Romeo. He had a bit of a collision with Robert Kubica uh, after his after his first pit stop and uh, suffered a reasonable amount of damage, lost a big chunk of his uh, left side barge board. Right, so that car that car was probably not uh, not performing well, but the Alfa just wasn't good. So they had, they had no no real hope in uh, in that race. George Russell, 17th. He uh, ended up slipping behind Kubica on the first lap and then uh, ran, I think, about eight laps longer than him. And then, yeah, passed him in the second stint, which has happened a lot. Russell's pointed out this has happened too much recently. He's admitted there's a bit of a weakness on the. It's not necessarily. It's not the starts from the launches fundamentally, but the first lap, dealing with the turbulence, being aggressive. The caveat is is he has to have to be careful with parts, etc. But that's less of a problem in the last race <laughs> uh, of the season. So uh, yeah, and, and finished ahead of Pierre Gasly uh, and uh, Kubica nineteenth. Mentioned the uh, the the Gasly incident at the at the start. Uh, Jake obviously um, Stroll was up the inside of Gasly going into the first corner, understeered a little bit, clipped the rear, and that sort of turned Gasly. And he Gasly actually clipped his front wing into the back of Perez. Actually, saw straight after the race, um, Perez went up to Gasly, sort of say, "What, what, what the hell was that?" Uh, but 
I can hear what they were saying, but basically it looked like Gasly explained it, did some hand gestures, showed he got hit in the rear turn of the car, and, and Checo basically went, oh, okay, right. So he was he was uh, he was uh, very happy with uh, with that one. But a shame Gasly didn't have a chance to try and be in the mix for that uh, that sixth place in the end. Certainly, uh, actively. Something I've found, pl- found plenty to talk about in the in this race. I guess the uh, the takeaways are Mercedes dominance and uh, Ferrari fuel question marks again, which I'm sure will run and run over the winter. Well, Jack, we should also talk about the least surprising piece of driver market news in Formula One history with Williams finally confirming that Nicholas Latifi will be driving for them next year in place of Robert Kubica, teammate to George Russell in 2020. Now, Formula One fans will be will be familiar with him. He's done six Fridays for, for Williams this year, five Fridays previously with uh, Racing Point Force India. He's got seven F1 test days under his belt, so over 3,000 kilometres of testing. Also tested for, for Renault back in, in 2017. So he's got by modern standards, quite a bit of seat time in a in a Formula One car, and he's finished uh, second in Formula Two this year. So, what should we expect from Latifi? It's very difficult to analyse what we should be expecting from Latifi. Really, I think um, it's th- there's there's many ways to look at this, but he was he was definitely chucked into um, F3 very early back in 2012, um, and and has bounced around. I'm sure he's the only F1 driver to ever finish 11th in the Porsche Carrera Cup Great Britain Championship for sure. But um, yeah, he's he's bounced around a lot and had a, a up and down single seater career for for sure. Um, Formula Renault 3.5 led to to F2 GP2, um, and and really 2018 was supposed to be. The year that Nicholas Latifi emerged onto the onto the scene properly, and with the new F2 car, it was supposed to equalise the field. There was a lot of rookies coming in at that point. You remember George Russell, Alex Albon, and Lando Norris were all part of that rookie crop. Lando having done a race in, in 2017 in, in GP2, but you can't really count that as him uh, having a lot of experience of uh, of F2. But Nicholas was really supposed to hit the ground running that year. It was really the year after he'd fought with Charles Leclerc for the second half of 2017 in in GP2, and, and really taken the fight to him and Ollie Rowland in that second half of the year. And that challenge never emerged. He was ill in the in the preseason testing. He missed the first test, and once he came back, he felt like he was chasing the, the new car completely. It was completely different to his uh, driving style, and, and the car didn't feel anything like the dams that he'd driven in the previous year in, in GP2. And he went almost on a, a rabbit warren of, of setup changes that took him in the complete wrong direction. All this happening while Alex Albon was scoring three consecutive poles uh, from the second race of the season onwards, and really, you know, taking the fight to, to George Russell and Lando Norris in that early part of the season. So Nicholas really struggled with that illness, and then and then the missing track time that, that he lost through through that test. So that was that was supposed to be his year, and it, it didn't it didn't go that way. It took till Hungary really for them to undo all the bad setup changes they'd made and, and for Nicholas Latifi um, if you've seen we've written a, a feature on, on autosport.com unfortunately it is written by me but if you take the time to work through it um, you know it explains that that season in, in great depth and it, it was hungry when they um, you know when they got that together but it also it also shows a, a great willingness for him to look inside himself and, and dig deep to, to realise that he's made mistakes and he's very honest about that in the feature if you if you read the quotes um, uh, very uh, honourable set of quotes I would say he's uh, you know he's, he's the first person to say I had to take a long look in the mirror to actually realise that it was my fault that we know what was going on there so 2019 um, has been much better we're still lacking a pole position I think that's the, the one thing that you know the, the F1 fans who are seeing him come in will will notice on his CV that he's not got an F2 or a GP2 pole position, which is obviously a, a big deal. But uh, he scored four wins this year, took the fight to Nicholas de Vries, and uh, I think I, I, I genuinely think he's been unlucky at times this season. We've seen a couple of incidents where he should have scored better results through through no fault of his own. Um, 
definitely Monaco was a big one where the um, the, the red flag was applied incorrectly and uh, Nick De Vries, who was leading the race at the time, was not then, you know, he didn't have to pit again in that race despite the fact that he should have done per the regulations because of the red flag. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to change tyres under the red flag, so theoretically he should have had to have made his mandatory tyre change later on in the race, and they, they didn't have to do that. And also the, the drivers further back were not given their lap back, which they also should have been. So from about eight downwards, I think it was, the, the whole field was a, was a lap down, and, and Nicholas was one of those drivers, and he felt very hard done to at that race. He was taken out by his teammate in the Red Bull ring, uh, Sergio said to camera. He also had a, a very... Uh, Controversial incident with with Guan Yu Zhu at, uh, at Monza as well, where he was uh, he came off the worst in in that bout as well. So probably three or four races that have, that have ruined his weekend just just off the bat there. And if you went back into more detail, you'd be able to to find a lot more. So I think he's unlucky that he's not fighting for the championship this weekend and, and that the championship was wrapped up a weekend early by by Nick De Vries. I think Nicholas Latifiorville very hard done by having seen Nick De Vries's performances in Abu Dhabi this weekend. He just can't manage the tyres this weekend and ART are a mile off. So if it had been a you know a final weekend decider, I think Nicholas. Latifi would have had a, a good chance of winning the championship this weekend but it's just not worked out for him I think what we can expect is what we've learned from his junior single seat career is he's very willing to to take a long look at himself to work on his own driving to listen to advice um, to accept when he's not got it right and to go back on that all key traits I think for you know we've seen drivers come in to Formula 1 and, and not have those traits um, be very strict about how they want the car set up and not be willing to make changes and realise that they're the problem and they're the kind of drivers who, who don't last very long in F1. So I think, judging by the fact that Williams are likely to be at the back of the field again, I, I think he's a perfectly acceptable choice for them to take. You know, he, he, we don't know the ins and outs of the deal, but we're all assuming that he brings some some budget through his fairly extensive family businesses. His dad's been involved with Formula One for a long time. Obviously, shares in McLaren were, were purchased last year around around Monaco time last year. So um, you know, he's very interested in Formula One, and he, he's always in the paddock there pushing Nicholas to. To, to do better and not in a not in a pushy carton dad kind of way but you know a very supportive kind of always a, an ever presence in the paddock and always a good person to talk to about Nicholas's performance as well and you can see where he gets that inward look from you know there's no uh, there's no shame at looking at yourself and saying I've made a mistake this round or we've made a mistake over the last couple of months so yeah I think I think he'll do a perfectly good job for Williams obviously with people like Nico Hulkenberg on the market you know Williams have made a big call to, to go with Nicholas despite the fact that his single CTC is you know, not as spotless as some of the other people. He'll learn a lot from George, I think. Um, you know, George has had that year to establish himself in Formula One now and has obviously proven that he's a, a very talented driver. And uh, I think Nicholas will have a lot to learn. And there will be times where um, he, he doesn't impress and he makes mistakes and he maybe isn't on George's pace. But I think, uh, you know, he's shown in his junior single-seater career, as we've talked about, that he's got that uh, that ability to to really book up, look at, look at data, analyse, work with his engineers. And you know, definitely uh, acknowledge that you know when he's made a mistake, he'll he'll be the first one to to try and undo it. He does strike me as one of those drivers who's never really caught the eye with this kind of stellar underlying ability. But like you say, that work I think has been important. I know Williams have been quite impressed with his attitude, the way he's. Uh, I spoke to Dave Robson, uh, basically the uh, principal engineer, I think is his job title, and he was saying that whenever Nicholas is in on on a Friday, he always kind of lifts the garage a bit. He's got a good approach, and I think. He's going to be the second driver to George Russell next year. I think. I don't think he's quite in that class. But from what I've seen, he does look like someone who can just work through things, will be quite a useful addition to the team. And he may not be someone who creates jaw-dropping lap times or that kind of thing. But I can see him putting together decent race performances, learning from those uh, mistakes, as, as you say. And obviously, 
it's a financially motivated decision that there's no doubt about that. The, the number I've heard is in the vicinity of maybe 15 million euros uh, for the year, which is the same basically as what Kibitza was was bringing for that drive. So there's there's no uh, there's no shame in that whatsoever. So yeah, he's he's not kind of a Norris Russell Alban type type talent, but one of those interesting ones who sometimes you see drivers like that do get progressively better the more complicated the the job becomes shall we say we've seen drivers come through with the the perfect junior single seater cv like stoffel van dorn and it's you know it's not worked for them it's not a it's not a golden key for you to be in formula one for the next 20 years it's uh it's 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 part of a much bigger package and i've seen some comments on social media and, and some reaction to to the feature he wrote and and, and people you know, saying Nicholas is a pay driver and he's bought his seat and he doesn't deserve to be there and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think I, I understand his uh, his junior single seat the CV isn't probably what you've come to expect from people who come into Formula One. But um, you know, for me, he's shown all the signs that he's got the ability to to improve. And I, I don't think um, you know it's, it's obviously difficult to to compare his junior single seat career to how he's going to react to Formula One. But as you quite rightly said, he's uh, you know very good at working with engineers. Um, we've already talked about how he's good at working on himself and uh, he understands data and is a very intelligent driver. Um, and the one thing we didn't mention there really is his, his racecraft as well, which is uh, something that will that'll see him good in, in Formula One, I think, because he's very... Um, He's not the he's not perfect in terms of racecraft. Don't get me wrong, but for someone who's not scored a pole position, he scored six wins in the championship, and that shows that he you know he can come through the field. We've seen him many times through this season qualify you know around sixth, seventh, eighth, and work his way forward to score podiums. He's very very good in a race situation, and I think the the only the only criticism I think I have of his his racecraft this year at all was that incident with with Guan Yu Zhou that I mentioned earlier, and. Um, you know that was a split second decision that he had to make there, and I think he should have bailed to the runoff quicker than he than he did. I think that that was, although that was Guan Yu Zhou's fault in, in my opinion. You know the opportunity was there for Nicholas to get out of the way of that one. I think, and he left the car there almost, and and you know trying to hold his ground. And and I think if he went back, he would change that immediately. But it, that that was a split second decision where he didn't know what the other driver was doing, and I think it's hard to criticise him for that. But yeah, for the for the rest of the season, the racecraft's been been really good, and uh, I think that you know that should help make up for some of the inevitable qualifying deficit that he will have to George Russell because, you know, as you wrote earlier this year, he's shown, George has shown an Alonso-like sort of approach to this year and an Alonso-like performance, if you like, from, from when he was at Minardi. So, um, and obviously is in the is in the Mercedes next week. So there's there's no doubt where George is going in, you know, in, in the in the grand scheme of things at the moment. Uh, Nicholas is um, through, through maybe, um, you know, it's, maybe it's not all his own fault, but through his junior single-seater CV, he is going to have to prove the doubt is wrong, whereas obviously George came in with those big titles, GP3 and F2 back-to-back, and, uh, you know, with a much better junior single-seater CV than, than Nicholas. So um, I don't think Nicholas will feel hard done to by any of the criticism he's received because I think he'll take ownership of his CV and be quite proud of a lot of what he's achieved. Obviously, it's not as good as uh, some of the drivers out there, but I think um, he's a... Uh, He's his own man. He is very much a man. Uh, I think that's worth pointing out because obviously there's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of kids in these his junior single seater categories. And Nicholas is always someone who seems to elevate himself. He's like a, a gravitas that he has in the paddock when he when he walks around and when he speaks to people. He's very um, he's very well respected and very highly thought of. So um, I think he'll bring all that as a package to to Formula One. And um, you know I, I think initially the lap times probably won't be there, and it'll it, it may take him a little bit of time to to get up to speed. But I think he's shown he's got some of the uh, characteristics that are needed for him to to catch up and and reduce that gap to George over the course of the season. 
Well, one thing he'll be guaranteed, obviously, he's going to be the best rookie of next season on the current trajectory because he's the only one. But it will be interesting to see how he gets on. And as for the pay driver tag, two things. One, you have to judge drivers by what they do, not how they got there. Plenty of drivers have bought money before. And two, with the super license rules, we don't get old style, the what, what were normally badged as the pay drivers, people with absolutely useless CVs. You know, there have been people who've got into Formula One who've never got even close to the kind of things he's achieved in Formula 2. So let's let's be fair, he may not be in the top bracket of Stella Junior career, but he's, he's not an idiot. So thanks very much, Jack Benyon, and also to Jake Boxall-Legg for your insight on both Nicholas Satifi and the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Do check out oldsport.com. Loads of fallout from the uh, from the race and the latest news from the world of motorsport on there and our plus subscriber area for more in-depth features, including the article on Nicholas Latifi that uh, Jack Benyon referenced. Oldsport podcast is out every Monday and Thursday, available free to subscribe. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.